Well, word, I don't really have anything to add to that. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Jeremy and Kelly, for sharing that. And we wanna continue to pray uh, for our New Hope for the Future team and our church as we think about what the future uh, for our church is. And so I ask you, if you're a member of this church, to be praying for uh, just God to continue to give us direction about uh, the future. Um, also, uh, we will be praying at the end of our service today for all of our uh, children and our teachers and uh, school staff and, and homeschoolers and uh, homeschool parents as uh, we prepare for school uh, to get started back. So we'll have a special time uh, for that at the end of our service. I also invite you uh, to be praying for our deacons as they uh, are entering into a season of uh, considering new deacon candidates. And we'll actually be having nominations for that in about 40 days. Uh, but we do want to pray uh, that God will rise up the right kind of people to help uh, serve our church in that capacity. And then uh, one more thing I'd invite you to pray for, and that's uh, something you can join us for next Sunday evening. Uh, that's August the 14th. Uh, we're gonna hear some reports from those who uh, were uh, invested in mission trips this summer. And then we're also and we're gonna pray for that and pray for the future uh, of our church engaged in uh, global and regional missions, but also pray for us as we live on mission in our schools and otherwise. So that's next Sunday, August 14th. So that's a lot of prayer. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, so we invite you to join us in praying. And a lot of what we're praying about is really our, our families, and uh, we wanna partner with families. And that is actually a major component of what we are talking about uh, during the six-week series that we are in titled Through All Generations, How We Can Be Better Together. Now, last week, we saw that Joshua led Israel into the promised land and Israel renewed the covenant with God after committing idolatry. And yet, the text tells us in Judges 2.10 that there then arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. So they make this commitment to God, but within a generation, there is a, a group of people, a generation of people who do not maintain that same commitment and do not have that same knowledge of God and who he is. And so we talked about the solution of this is a commitment to the church being a family, that's how the church should view themselves, that is committed to its future, a family that says, hey, we are committed to our future. So we as believers have a primary identity as sons, as sons and daughters of God. We are sons and daughters of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ who have a shared heavenly father. And we then are most concerned on earth with making disciples, helping more people see that they are sons and daughters of God. That is who their identity is, who they were created to be. And we want to continue to be committed to this for our future. We don't just want that to be a season. We want it to be perpetually who we are as a church. So a lot of people asked me last week, okay, so what do I do? Like, I'm all in, I'm, I'm with you. What, what do I actually do? Well, in two weeks, I'm going to be sharing about our strategy as a church, kind of our long game as a church, some things we wanna see happen across our church body for a long time. And there are things that you can be a part of in this church and that you can take with you if the Lord would move you and ultimately have you be a part of another church somewhere. But today, I want us to understand where it begins and ultimately, where all the things that we do point to and are centered around. Last week, we were in Judges chapter 2. Today, I invite you to turn back to Joshua chapter 24. 
in a setting that's happening leading up to what we read in Judges chapter two. A little background, Joshua led a generation of Israelites into the promised land. They are entering into the land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years beforehand. Okay, Siri says that she found Joshua 24 for me, just so you know. Um, So that's never happened before. What was I talking about? Joshua, into the promised land. She knows what I was talking about. Uh, so uh, they, they actually have all these victories as they go into the promised land over these different places. And Joshua gathers the tribes together. And that's where we're at in Joshua chapter 24 when he says this in verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, I ask that you use me to convey your heart to your people and that you use me to help someone who doesn't understand their identity as son and daughter of God who is searching for their identity to see you as their father. God, may you be glorified from our time in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So notice that Joshua asked them to make a choice. Serve the God of your ancestors. Serve the gods of the lands that you live in now or serve God. I I think a lot of times when people talk about culture differences, when people talk about generational differences, we're often, often arguing about things that are not necessarily about the God of creation. And so Joshua's making a distinction here. He's saying, I'm not telling you to look to the past and do life the way they did it. And I'm not telling you to look to today and do life the way they did it. I'm saying, look to God. And he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we are going to break that statement down in our time together today. I'll start with the fact that Joshua says, as for me and my house. Joshua is demonstrating responsibility for himself and for his house. Christian parents are responsible for the discipleship of their children. Christian parents are responsible for the discipleship of their children. It is the primary work of the church to fulfill the role of discipling one another. Everything we do, our budgets, our buildings, our programming, everything we do revolves around The church is called to make disciples of Jesus, to help people see that they are sons and daughters of God and to become more like Jesus. A responsibility of the church is to ensure that younger believers or new believers who might not be that young, who just might be young in the faith, are being discipled by older and more mature believers. That is that more seasoned and mature followers of Jesus 
would invest in young believers and newer believers to help them see how God can be trusted and how his word can be trusted. That is the responsibility of the church. The responsibility of the church, however, should not neglect the responsibility of Christian parents for the faith of their children as much as it depends on them. Moses gave the law to the Israelites in preparation of the Israelites entering into the promised land. And when he did, he instructed the Israelites to be diligent in teaching the commandments of God to their children and in reminding their children how God delivered his people out of slavery. We will talk about this more next week. But it is widely accepted that the instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 6 are given to parents regarding the children of their household, a conclusion that is then supported by the references to everyday life that are contained within the instructions given in Deuteronomy. Joshua, as they actually are in the promised land and beginning to get settled, re-ups on this commitment by asking for leaders of the tribes to renew this covenant with God. And we believe that every household was then asked to make this very same commitment. Dwayne Christensen says this, the continuity of faith within the context of a religious community depends on the observance of that faith within individual families. I'll read that again. The continuity of faith within the context of a religious community, that's the church, depends on the observance of that faith within individual families. What this means is, is if we want to see what God is doing right now be continual, then it majorly hangs on whether or not households are bought in to what you see happening in the church community. Now, Paul taught that God was sovereign over where people live, that they might seek him. Acts chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. Paul also wrote that the heavenly father is the reason for everyone's placement in an earthly family. Ephesians 3, verse 14 and 15. What this is telling us is that God has us where we are for a reason. And a Christian needs to understand that there are a lot of commandments and a lot of ought to's and a lot of one another's in the Bible, and we are to live those out where we are. And so where we have proximity is where we're to be fulfilling the call of God on our life. I very much value the kingdom of God and what God is doing globally through his church. We pray and say, it is not our desire to just grow a church, it's our desire to build the kingdom. However, that starts with this church. That starts with me realizing God has me here, and there are certain responsibilities and certain things he has called me to do here. That starts with the community of Niceville, realizing God has placed us here, and so we are to live on mission here. It starts with realizing wherever we work, wherever we play, wherever we learn, that's where God has us, and we are to do the things that God has called us to do there because we have proximity to those people that we are around. And our family is a group of people we have high proximity to. You see, anyone who I have proximity to is a priority. I have high proximity to my earthly family, so they should be a priority. That is why our earthly family matters. Not because of anything the world says about what family should be, but because of what the scripture says about who we should be and about what the scripture says about how we should be around anyone we're around on a regular basis and the people God has placed in our family that he's sovereignly placed in our family are people that we are to majorly invest in. They are a priority. Now, 
We all know what I'm talking about. So why is there any tension with this? Like, why, why aren't we just all just saying, yeah, of course, we're gonna do this? Well, there is tension with this. And I would say that a lot of people don't actually like to have meaningful conversation about how this is going and the direction of their family because of this. Because our household is a very clear indicator of what we are living for. And it is very revealing of who we really are. You see, it's really easy to go into a Bible study group and talk about theoretically what it should be like in our marriage, in our home. It's easy to preach on this. It's another thing to actually live this out. And when we look at the direction of our home, we realize I have a ton of control over that. I have a ton of influence. So where it is, is largely affected by who I am as a mother or a father. And so when somebody would point out that, there's not a lot we can do. Now, we could, we could talk about the problems of the church, right? Because how much do we really affect that? Well, okay, I affect a lot. But, you know, how much do we all really affect that? It's easy to hide behind that, but when we look at our own family, we really don't want to be vulnerable and talk about it. We have to confess and be honest that most of us are, are majorly influenced, if not governed by a Western idealistic mindset. That is, that for most of us, the goal is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, that's, that's a great thing to say as a society. We are revolved around people living, people having freedom, and people being able to pursue what makes them happy. But then as a Christian, I would suggest that often most of us have exchanged what God defines as life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness for what our country defines as life and liberty in pursuit of happiness. Most of us who even profess Jesus Christ are not practically living as if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're not living as if our freedom is given to us to serve one another, and we're not living trusting that God is for our ultimate joy. We really don't believe that is God. And if we do believe that that is God, then we need to ask ourselves, is God shaping my marriage? Or is it some worldly expectation I have of my spouse? Is God shaping how I parent? Or is it some worldly goal I have for my children? And to live the ways of God here requires great intentionality. It requires a saying, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to this. And it requires responsibility. And while this was understood as the responsibility of mothers and fathers for millennia in the church, a shift has taken place to where many Christian parents view the church as the primary teacher of their children, of spiritual things at least. And so there's not a lot of intentionality on a mother or a father but rather, they'll go to the church to learn those things. And in the church growth era, which I believe is somewhat fading, we've seen that churches have went along with this because it attracts and retains families. And churches who embrace this model eventually find themselves competing with other churches for the attention of children and their parents. And in many cases, focus heavily on programming that is entertaining and fun more than it is foundational. Holly Allen and Christine Ross, again, no relation, point out how this is shaping the strategy of churches. 
They say this marketing emphasis makes attracting families with children the key to numerical growth. In order to attract children, the church must offer an exciting, entertaining hour of children's programming. Not only is this a departure from the scriptural teaching on family discipleship, it is counterproductive to the mission of the church. Listen, the greatest opportunity for children to adopt the beliefs of the church is through the example and the encouragement of their parents in discipleship. If we say we wanna reach the next generation, then the most effective way to reach the next generation is through their parents exampling and encouraging their children in discipleship. Parents, excuse me, children look to their parents for bad examples and good examples. And the most effective way that we can train a generation to see what it means to trust in Jesus is by having parents who model what it means to trust in Jesus and by having parents who are their cheerleaders for their faith. The Pew Research Group says that even teens, teenagers who attend worship services with two parents are relatively likely to say that their religious beliefs are the same as their parents. Studies show that kids who grow up with both of their parents loving the Lord and being in church with them are most likely to maintain that same faith. Even if they tell you, it's like, gosh, I don't really wanna get up. The truth is, the numbers don't lie. Them going and being with you is the greatest thing it's gonna show you, show them. And so churches, listen, should welcome children that join us for programs that do not belong to Christian families. We should. But this cannot be a substitute for the focus on equipping Christian parents to disciple their children. Churches must view the primary role of children's ministry as a partnership to equip Christian parents to disciple their children. You as a parent are responsible for the discipleship of your children. And as a church, you cannot be satisfied with we have a bunch of children on our campus and they keep coming, that's it. And if you know the Bible, this isn't a surprise to you. Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four says this. Ephesians chapter four, verse 11. It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. These are church leaders, people who are called by God to lead in the church. They're not special, they're just called. He says, there are those, people who say, we don't need the church, we're just family church. Okay, you're neglecting the scripture too. Verse 11, he gave the, sorry, verse 12. Here's why he gave them. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It does not say he gave us church staff to do all the ministry. He said the reason there are leaders in the church is so that the saints, believers, would be equipped to do the ministry. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's this picture here of God indeed giving us spiritual leaders in the church for the purpose of equipping the saints for ministry so that the, the other believers would be mature. And so when they grow up and they hear the ways of the world, they know the truth that they are not taught, they're not caught captive by those ways of the truth. That's the design that God has. Now, it's not easy. In fact, especially if you're in that season where you are training children, it's exhausting. I heard a story about a guy in a grocery store. He had, he had three children with him in the grocery store. They were running around. They were being allowed. This isn't me on Friday at Winn-Dixie, even though it could be applicable because that did happen on Friday. But uh, he was in there, and one of his friends from church came up and saw him, and they, they overheard him saying, George, you know, don't run around. George, don't, don't run out. George, uh, you know, don't yell. George, don't lose it. And they said, man, hey, I just want to say I think you're doing a good job. I know this is tough. Which one's George? And he says, oh, I was talking to myself. That's how it feels a lot. So, so it's not easy. And you need to understand something. The scripture commands you not to do it alone. The scripture says you're to, bar, to be a part of a church family that is committed to doing this with you. And our goal for parents here is that you would be in one of our life groups because there you're going to develop relationships with people who maybe are farther in the journey or who are with you in the journey, hopefully both, and who are going, you're gonna hear that you're not crazy, that there is no temptation that is not common to man, you're not isolated, you're not the only person that's ever gone through that. And hopefully you'll have people who will really speak into your life when they see you airing. And look, some of you, you're not, you're not there. It's not a nuclear family. It's not you and your husband or you and your wife and, and, and there's divorce and it's not you know, how you envisioned it being. I would just say this to you. If you read the Bible, hardly any of the families are the ideal family. And the call here is not to the ideal. The call here is to the idea that God has birthed in all of us to be faithful where we are to train our children to know and live for Jesus. And so that's the goal is to connect you. But let me also say this. The goal is that if you are a parent, you are involved in the ministry that exists in this church. Here's why. What I have noticed is the people who I want to be like when I am their age, who've raised godly, faithful children, they were actively involved when their children were in children's student ministry. Many of you who've been here a long time know who Mary Wright is. Mary Wright is just, she's in her 80s. Very few people do more for the kingdom of God in this community than Mary Wright. A lot of our younger people say, I want to be Mary Wright when I'm in her 80, my 80s. But her and Tom served in children's ministry every week when their children were in children's ministry. And they served in student ministry every week when their children were in student ministry. And they have continued to serve. A lot of people want to finish like Mary Wright but they don't wanna do the work that is required to do that. Roger and Kay Barrett, who are in this service, who I look up to, you are great godly example. You have great godly children. You've been involved. You're still involved in our kids' lives. 
John and Sandy Stokes, I don't know if they're in this service, but they've been involved. You guys are normal people, not like me who have a pastor job, right? Like you're normal people and you are involved. I am urging you not to dump your children off with other people, but to be a part of what God is doing and shaping them. As for me and my house, I take responsibility. Notice what else Joshua says. We will serve the Lord. The commitment of Christian discipleship is not conceptual, it is practical. The commitment of Christian discipleship is not just theoretical, it's not conceptual, it is practical. Joshua says you have to make a choice today. Who are you going to serve? The word serve is the Hebrew word avad, which means work for. This is slave language of their day. He says, who is going to be your master? You are faced with a choice. Who are you going to work for? Who are you going to actively serve? So let's be clear here. Having a sign up in your house that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, is not actually a sign that you are indeed serving the Lord. Having a sign up in your house that says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, isn't a sign that you're actually serving the Lord. Even though if you're as handy as I am, it's a lot of work to even hang a simple sign, so you're very committed to put that up in your house. Now, I'm not saying you can't have that sign up in your house. Most of us do. You don't have to go home and knock it down, and, you know, I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying. Don't be deceived by having art on your wall and a quote on your Instagram they're actually doing anything for Jesus. I think a lot of people view Christianity the same way a lot of people view a gym membership. Hey, I pay a little bit, and I have the membership, and I have the rights. Do you go? No. Is that really being a part of, of that gym? Here's why I think more and more children are walking away from the faith. We live in a culture where because of prosperity, there is less and less of a perceived advantage to being a Christian today. It's not as advantageous as it was for most of us when we grew up. And when most children have been taught by their parents that God is simply something that helps us achieve our goals, so we go to church when we don't have a vacation or a travel ball tournament on so we can acknowledge him, and when we give money to the church as long as it doesn't interfere with all the things that we wanna do so that we keep him on our side, and we want you to get baptized so you don't go to hell, but the children don't actually see worship. They don't see surrender. They don't see sacrifice. They don't see serving. They're actually seeing something else as the goal. They're seeing something else as the elevated thing in their life. And the sad thing I've noticed is most parents actually don't care if their children are really following Jesus until they end up doing something morally different than they did. And so they didn't really treasure if their kid was hungry for the word or had conversation with Jesus, but when maybe their sexuality was something that was unacceptable when they were young, then it bothers them. Or when they get into trouble with the law, then it bothers them. And at that point, even though there's the grace of God, practically speaking, we've lost. And, and I just wanna say this, because I don't want you to hear otherwise. You could go to church every time the door is open and still not be intentional with your children. You see, it's both and. It's being responsible for our house and it's being actively a part of the faith community.
It's saying, God, I'm gonna work for you. You're going to be my master. And the mentality of our lives is that you are Lord. And while the grace of God is big, my friend Paul Purvis, who's the current president of the Florida Baptist Convention, says this. Don't expect for your children to grow up and prioritize what you marginalized. And so if God was just on the margins for you in your life as you raised them, don't expect him to be important to them. You know, something that was increasingly popular when I was a kid, I remember hearing parents say this and really as I kind of entered into adulthood. Now, I, I wanna remind you, I didn't grow up in the church, so I was just kind of like a sponge hearing these things and I, I, a lot of parents were saying when their kids were in high school, well, you know, I'm not making them go to church because, you know, I, I want them to decide for their own. I don't wanna make them do anything. And I just wanna say to this, that did not work. And if you're a parent and your child doesn't wanna eat anything but sweet tarts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you say, I'm just gonna let them eat sweet tarts. I don't wanna make them do anything. I love you, but that's bad parenting. And if we believe that the word of God and the faith community is more nourishing than a meal, then why is it an option in our house? That as long as you're in my house, I don't, don't be a jerk about it, but this is what we do. This is what we're going to do. And when you're 18, you have to make those decisions and pray that the Holy Spirit of God would work in their hearts so they would love Jesus too. And the only motive, I'm telling you, this is not easy. And the only motivation that sustains all of this is really believing how great thou art. It's really that he is greater than I. And what I would just suggest to you is this. If we are saying that he is greater than I, the he of the Bible, then we must also say we is greater than I. Meaning we realize if he is greater than I, then being part of his family is greater than I. And so even being, my faith is expressed through a community and by being a servant to that community. When I become a Christian, my new identity as a son or daughter of God is with brothers and sisters in Christ who have the same heavenly father. I am a part of the family of God. People say to me, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's true. You don't have to do anything. There is no work that makes you a Christian except for the work that Christ did on the cross. But there are a lot of things that Jesus said and the Bible says, if you are a Christian, you will want to do these things. This should characterize our life. I wanna look a little further here at Joshua chapter 24. So we read verse 14 and 15. I now wanna read verse 16. Remember, Joshua says, choose to stay whom you will serve. He says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Listen to what they say in verse 16. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord for he is our God. This is the response you want at the end of the worship service. Yes, God delivered us. We wouldn't be here without God. He is the greatest. He has provided for us. We will serve him. But listen, verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. 
He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will return and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Wait, I thought anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I thought forgiveness was available to all. It is. But I think Joshua, somewhat speaking prophetically, says, you're not sincere. And so God is jealous. God wants to be your only master. You can't serve two masters. And so if you're trying to bring God into this idolatry, it's not gonna work out for you well. And a lot of us are sacrificing the things of God at the altar of success, prosperity, and comfort when we should be committed to the advancement of Jesus' work with our lives. A lot of us are, a lot of families in our community are sacrificing at the altar at the small chance that their kids might be famous one day when we should be committed to the fame of Jesus through our children. A lot of us are sacrificing at the altar of whatever emotional fad is informing our heart when we should be committed to the heart of God being carried out on this earth. And Joshua says, if you just want God to bless you as you keep on doing you, that's not worship. That's not repentance. That's not serving. Jesus would go on to say, you cannot have two masters. Choose whom you will save, serve. And hopefully your response is what the crowd hearing Joshua felt. Verse 21. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So here's this commitment to go to their tribes and as for them and their house, serve the Lord. And what we find out is there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. You see, what I would suggest based on the evidence we see in the scripture is they did not deal with the idolatry in the land like they should. They were not intentional like they should with their children as they began to be prosperous in this land. And that's the call to us, is to be that intentional, that focused on who God is. And so I'll just ask you some questions here. What do you talk about a lot? Because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if the conversation in your home and where you go is rarely about Jesus, then maybe Jesus isn't really on your heart. What do you spend money on? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if you aren't generous to the kingdom of God, maybe the kingdom of God is not on your heart. And what do your children think your goal for their life is? 
Like really, what do they think you want for their life? As Christians, yes, we want our family tree to be strong, but when I think of our family tree, first generation believer, taking responsibility for my family, I want the tree of Calvary to be what's strong that I pass down to my family. That living for the gospel of Jesus Christ as sons and daughters of God will be where we are. And listen, the culture is gonna constantly throw us curveballs because, and I'm just picking on them because they're low-hanging fruit, but, but places like Disney have, have, have an ideology that they're trying to teach. People are trying, culture is not passive. Morals are not passive. They're trying to teach something and we must constantly decipher what the truth is. The president of your travel sports organization has a goal for you and your child, and we must constantly say, as for me and my house, and take responsibility. Our peers constantly have a life they want for us. Their peers, our children's peers, constantly have a life they want for us. Our church even has a goal for us, and we can see today that we have a church, churches that are plagued with entertainment without discipleship. And we have to be content in saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord no matter what. And it's not easy. And it requires dedication and it requires commitment. But the passing on of these values of who Jesus is and the identity that we have as sons and daughters of God is worth it. Let us not grow weary in doing good. I heard a story one time about a guy. He was a car guy. And he was really into classic cars. And finally he saved up enough money to buy himself a classic car. I don't know what it is. I'm not a car guy, so um, it wasn't a Honda Accord. Uh, what's like an awesome antique car? Somebody? I can't hear you. You have to yell. Mustang. Okay, it was an awesome classic Mustang. He loved that car. He took good care of that car. He tinkered on it. And when he died, he left that car to his son. And whenever his son had had it for a few years, his son, his son decided to sell this car. Because maintaining it, he, did, he didn't know how to tinker with it. He didn't know how to maintain it. To have people fix it up for him just cost a lot of money. Parts cost a lot of money. He wasn't really into it. And so when he sold it, someone said, are you sure you wanna sell that? He's like, yeah, I can make a lot of money off of it. He's like, yeah, but that meant so much to your dad. And he said, you know, it did. But all I really remember is my dad leaving the family to go out into the garage to mess with his car. And when we came around, we bothered him. He didn't want us to mess up the car. He never taught us what he was doing with the car. And so honestly, it's more valuable for me to just sell it. It is messier, noisier, more exhausting, costly to pour our life into the next generation. But the thought of my children and your children and your grandchildren not seeing the treasure we have in Christ and the value of what we have is worth every bit of energy and sacrifice. May that be our commitment. I'm gonna ask Steve Walker, who's one of our deacons. Steve was raised by Ernest Walker, faithful pastor for a long time, passed away just a few years ago. Steve has four children who love the Lord. He's got a slew of grandchildren. 
I love you, brother. I know you have a father's heart, and I just ask for you to pray as we respond this morning. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to see so many young families here today that have made this a priority to be in worship. Father, I thank you for a pastor that's boldly proclaiming your word from the Old Testament. But, Father, we're charged and challenged today. Father, there's a stern warning of what can take place in just one generation. Heavenly Father, I pray that today is a day of commitment, that we commit ourselves to teaching Jesus in our homes, having an active prayer life, teaching our children all about Jesus. Lord, I thank you for, the, for my parents that made that a priority, that lived Jesus every single day. And the impact that they had, not just on their children, but on their grandchildren who are currently serving. Lord, I pray for those that are partnering with those children on campus today. I ask your blessings on them for their commitment. Lord, again, I pray we're challenged today to commit ourselves more to you in raising families, grandchildren and children. Thank you again for our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.